Welcome to episode 438 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a very insightful conversation with farmer, winemaker, sensei, coming straight out of Stockbridge, Vermont, our reluctant resident philosopher, Almighty Todd. We talk with the Almighty about the fruits of our labors during this autumn season, the ways of Eastern and Western philosophy, the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, as well as the social contract, that concept via Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, rebellion and bad faith arguments, just enjoying life, canning peaches and picking some black currant through the golden rods. A grand conversation with Almighty Todd. We have an EWSA titled Wow, and we share an excerpt from a piece titled Eating the Whale by Wyatt Williams, published in the September 2021 edition of Harper's Magazine. And we have a poem called Rising. All of this, of course, is imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 438 of Troubadours and Tours. i 
are expediated with such stealth, with a dominion of wealth at one's disposal. How simple it is to find acceptance and support for that business proposal when the well-positioned deem you noble of their ilk, or at least one who knows how to maneuver in ways through the system that disguise and normalize malfeasance by draping such in fine silk. The Chamber of Commerce knows how to traverse all impediments to their club's flourishing bottom line. Social contracts do not pertain. That sort of understanding is for the romantic and naively vain. How can you expect them rich folk to do just the same as the normative average us? Get on the bus, man, woman, trans, fluid, and flux. The collective is your only chance of humanity actually making a movement out of people that truly give off. We do exist in this misguided and everyday-born conscript of day trips around the sun. While... Those lost souls are our siblings too. They choose to eschew the guidance and glory of the many as one under the stars we come from and the sky of blue as it inspires and protects us for real and to be true. Whether we will look up and down and all around The smells, sights, sounds so genuine and profound. Life is here and now.
Hello, Almighty Todd. Is that you, my good friend? Conundrum, is that you, my friend? It is. It's so it nice. Is. It's so nice, once again, to have you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Uh, I Lovely think, to talk with you. Oh, it is. It's a joy. And uh, we've been doing it for years, way before the radio program. But in the context of the radio program, you're the longest uh, regular contributor, you know, continuous regular contributor on no the kidding. program. Yeah, you are. It's fantastic. That uh, means I'm real, I must be old. <laughs> no, you're a youngin'. Uh, Almighty Todd is a farmer, a winemaker. Uh, he's a sensei. He has his own dojo out of Stockbridge, Vermont. Our reluctant resident philosopher. Yes. Right. Philosopher. F-A-U-X. Yeah, uh, well, if that's that that tells me how wise you are, right there. <laughs> uh, when you know that you don't know, then you know. <laughs> don't you know? Don't you know? So uh, we're we're talking with you uh, again as you sit in your homestead up in uh, Stockbridge, Vermont, and I know there are several things on your mind. You wanted to talk about um, autumn and fruits of our labor. And uh, you want to talk about the yes. social contract a little bit and uh, bad faith arguments and fallacies and logic not being in line, things of that nature. So, you know, first of all, how are yeah. you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right, all things considered. Um, healthy still. I haven't caught a breakthrough case, so that's kind of nice. Um, it, it's crazy to think that, you know, Vermont, we have numbers. We have high numbers compared to where we've ever been. Um, so, but we're still doing way better than everybody else. Yeah, you guys are. So we're still in a weird world here, but we're we're all kind of managing it. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned the, the homestead because, in a lot of ways, I'm more a homestead homesteader than a farmer. I'd say, although I've I have farmed in over the years. I'm not actively making big crops now. Just trying to keep a massive, too big garden going and animals walking around. But, um, yeah, we're, you know, it's been funny because we have been home a lot, but I've always been working and stuff. So I've been not really getting the chores done or the projects done that I would like. 
So it's a funny state of affairs. Well, what's the difference between a homesteader and a farmer? Well, I think the homesteader is kind of more subsistence farming, and you might uh, you might make some extra vegetables and sell them for to pay your taxes with, or you know, do some logging to sell wood for firewood or lumber. Whereas farming is like you know that that's a whole kind of 24 7 365 you never take a vacation ever ever type uh situation i mean i i know i have friends here that are farmers of all different shapes and sizes but vermont being a small state the farms none of the farms are that that big and maybe in addison county you'll get a dairy farm that's a few hundred acres but there's a lot of 10 acre farms here and i know you know my wife's family are from the midwest and they they do some farming out there and they visit it and be like oh it's so cute these <laughs> farms because out there it's like you you don't consider yourself farming until you're at like 900 acres <laughs> <laughs> that's not agribusiness though is it well no no it's not as big as agri those are family farms still agribusiness is more i mean heck i was hearing a, a story on the radio about ranchers in colorado and kind of like them trying to figure out how to make it and can they really keep the ranch it's a family you know mother and her son and some helpers run it and um you know they're starting to sell off some of the some parts some smaller properties to you know pay taxes and do things like that and then they say it's a hundred and eighty eight thousand acre ranch <sighs> it's just like i my mind could was like at that moment just kind of like locked up and was like trying to figure out Right, exactly. Like, have they walked on every piece of that land at all, ever? I don't know, but I mean, it's like, that's half the size of the county I live in. That's nuts. Yeah. I can't keep my front yard mowed. I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to keep, I mean, I, I stuff went by this year because I was so busy. The, the goldenrod grew up through my black currants, and I couldn't even see them. I know that they were probably could have been harvested a few weeks ago, but I just... I just couldn't get in there. I'm going to have to put some ground cloth down around those. Cause I mean, I, this is where, you know, not, not farming, but most like typical, you know, homeowners, they'll have a black currant bush or two to pick some black currants. But then I'm like the idiot that has like 20. <laughs> <laughs> because you didn't know when to say winter. They, they just spread on their own. No, I, well, they actually, they do walk. I didn't realize that they, the, they get tall enough and then the branch falls down and hits the ground. And it lays there and it throws roots off. So they, they do get bigger. Um, and I put a gooseberry in, which I really like a lot. So I'm going to make put some more of those in. But it's like, why don't I got to like retire so I can take care of this stuff. Right, I, right. This, this is where the whole fruits of the labor thing came from was that I was, you know, it's harvest time. I just had the chance last week to go and um, – or actually on Sunday to go and um, harvest grapes in the Champlain Valley with my friends who have a winery. Um, in the neighborhood here and uh, you know it was glorious it was just it's always such a great experience and I was um, picking peaches here because we have a peach tree that bore fruit again this year and I'm going to plant some more of them because I guess they can kind of up and die without notice um, yeah that's what I've heard too yeah, peach trees um, are you know they, they're, they don't last that long usually yeah, but I got close to 60 pounds off of the thing, and so I gave a bunch of way. Mom made pies. A friend made pies. Put some in the freezer. Um, Homemade peach pie at mom's house. Wow. Oh, man. It was great. I mean, honestly, everybody was like 
they were pretty psyched about how good that pie was. Was that Labor I, Day? I it was Labor Day, yeah. We got had a family get-together, which was kind of nice to have, kind of be back to some normality there. But um, so, yeah, so I was thinking about that fruits of our labor and how how it is to, you know, put in time in the garden and in your yard or the farm what the farmers do and, you know, what you expect out the other end. And I kind of got thinking about it. It's like, so where did that come from? What's the is there like an etymological, not etymological, but at least like a linguistic origin Mm -hmm. for that concept? Mm -hmm. So, of course, I I did some. Research on the internet, so it must be true. <laughs> Did you use the Google? I, I used Rabbi Google. To, uh, <laughs> Never heard that. That's to good. Answer my questions. Um, yes, I had a, a friend of mine that gave me that one years ago. And said, you can always ask Rabbi Google. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, yeah, but, me, means know, to an end, right? Yeah, just 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 because it's on the internet does not mean it's true. And you know, you and I both know we have some training in cross-referencing mm-hmm. sources. Mm-hmm. And like vetting the information sources. Um, so yeah, so I did I did a little looking around, and I was in, interested in what I found because the first reference I came across was in the Bhagavad Gita, the what's the Indian text of wisdom. Yeah, that's like and at least what fifty, sixty years old, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, right before my parents went to college. No, I, I actually, I remember that hearing the word for the first time in eighth grade because we were doing your world world history studies. And it was just kind of like saying, oh, Indians are Hindu. They they follow the Bhagavad Gita. White people are Christian. They follow the Bible. It's like, so, how reductive. Reductive <laughs> that, is a perfect that, word, yeah. That, that was like, you know. Here, here's some, here's a little bit of information. <laughs> Make sure you can spit it out on a test later. And it's all equal, um, you know. The bugger, the, I can't. I have yeah, tr- it's, it's all that. I have trouble saying that that word for some reason. Help me out. Ba, bag, Bhagavad. Bhagavad. Gita. Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita and the Bible. Like, yeah, they're exactly they're the same time period. They have the same worth and the same value and the same insight. Everything is equal. You know, well, and, and which Bible are you talking about? You know, right, the, the Old Testament, Testament, the New, which, which the would, other people would just call the scripture their scriptures. <laughs> they don't call it the Bible, um, right? Right. But the Bhagavad Gita is the song of God, and it predates, I would think, right? It predates the the Bible. Um, uh, no, that no? was the interesting part of my studies. That it, well, my my studies uh, um, was that. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Okay, go. I'm sorry. But, but, yeah, no, that's good. That's that's good. You're asking good questions, conundrum, um, which is always more important than answers. Yes, Socrates. From my perspective. Um, so the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 2, verse 47 says, You have a right to perform your prescribed duties, but you are not entitled to the fruits of your actions. Never consider yourself to be the cause of the results of your activities nor be attached to inaction. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot packed into one sentence. I like it. But it's pretty good. But And I think what it, it's meant to convey is that, you know, there is worth in, you need to find worth in doing the thing itself and not be tethered to what happens because of that work. 
outcomes? I mean, that's that. Yeah, that's kind of a hard, you know, thing for the Western mind to swallow. I would think. Yeah. Because I I, I want to get paid. Well, I want to get paid, and we all everything we do is about assessment and outcomes and bottom line. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. that is a tough thing. Now, how does this connect to fruits of you know our labor and and autumn? Well, this is it. That you you know the you know I feel for the farmers who are really are farming and they're trying to push you know they push hard all year to make a crop come out in the other in the end, but they do know on some level that something could happen to that crop the day before they're about to harvest it. I've had birds eat my grapes here, you mm -hmm. know, a week before I thought they should show up and too bad out of luck. But, you know, hailstorms, bugs, terrible, you know, anything can happen. Hurricane, you come and wipe out your your crop. So, Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you talk, you mentioned peach trees. I have a peach tree in my backyard. I think in the last decade that it's been there, I've had one peach off of it, not because there isn't a high yield. The squirrels and the birds get to them before uh, I ever have a chance. And, uh, but I still well, love the peach tree. I still wa love watching the, looking at the flowers early on, you know, in, yes. in spring, and then just seeing them grow. And I don't even expect to get any peaches for myself. Well, here's, here's something for you, because this is something I had to read about and find out. I didn't realize you had a peach tree in your yard. What you want to do is you can't wait until the peaches are ripe on the tree. Mm. So you actually me. need to harvest them while they're hard. That's, you know, the ones that come to us in the store, that's how they're picked that way because they can ship safely. They don't bruise because once they start falling off the tree, they're already ripe, ripe, ripe. And you've got like a day or two before they're all gone. So this is – I. What you do is you harvest them early. When you start seeing them take on color, you can start doing it. You can wait a little bit longer, but while they're still really firm, mm -hmm. you pick them and then you lay them like on a towel with their stem side down and not touching one another. And then you cover them with another towel or with paper mm -hmm. and they exude an ethylene gas that they ripen themselves. Wow. In those conditions. Wow. Like I even had a bunch of culls. Like you're also supposed to like thin your peach crop so that you don't have too much on it and break the tree. So you're not supposed to have like doubles and you're supposed to have like a peach every eight inches or so. So I called some stuff about six weeks ago, five weeks ago, that was really was starting to labor the tree. Mm -hmm. But I stored it that way. They're, they're small and they're not completely sweet, but they're extremely flavorful. I just went, I just dug into them. I'm using them uh, for a project today. I pulled them out last night. They're uh, all really ripe. Some of them were starting to go by. What kind of project? Cuisine? Uh, yes. Some some chutney. Nice. So, anyway, sorry. Right, so we're, we're, we we digress. Um, but, but okay. So you asked about the. Bhagavad Gita and the and the Bible. Well, it turns out in Ecclesiastes, it, it is a set of nineteen verses. Ecclesiastes is from the Old Testament, hailing from the same at the very earliest fifth century, more likely second century BC as the Bhagavad Gita. So they're kind of con they're contemporaneous. Mm -hmm. There is the last three passages are about a similar concept, and it's 
Here is what I see as good. It is appropriate to eat and drink and prosper from all the toil one toils at under the sun during the limited days of life God gives us. This is our lot. Hmm. To those, those whom God gives riches and property and grants power to partake of them so that they may receive their lot and find joy in the fruits of their toil. This is a gift from God. So over here we're saying on one side we're saying hey you know what en enjoy the work for what it is and don't expect something to you know don't expect something for it you know in fact that's kind of what kind of the basis of in that chapter of the Bhagavad Gita uh, of karma mm -hmm. is that you may not see the the benefits of your labor now but in the greater cycle of life that is going to come back to you Whereas in this one saying, well, hey, you worked pretty hard. You should uh, you should enjoy that. So God has blessed you. This is this is Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, all like all compared and intermingled. What we're talking about, at least, well, I guess Hindu for the Bhagavad Gita. I wouldn't say Buddhism. I haven't. I didn't find a Buddhist reference to fruits of the labor. I think Buddhism I should keep looking. Buddhism, I think, comes out of India. I would be surprised if it wasn't influenced. You know. Well, but then you're talking about there's that whole detachment thing, right? Which it, and you Buddhism. Know, you should. You can't be detached to anything, even to life itself. You know, attached to anything, even to life itself. Good point. Good point. So that confuse. I mean. This is confusing stuff. <laughs> but that's the beauty of philosophy. It makes you really dig down and deep and reflect, and and uh, that's going to give you a better sense of self and, and, and the world, your existence, all of that, everything around you. That's the beauty of philosophy. That's the it's, power it's, of it. And that's where, you know, philosophy, the word means like a lover of knowledge. Um, but in some ways, I think it's more uh, a, a love of thinking. Of thought and of understanding reason and how you can actually we can in some ways make sense of the world that is got so much incomprehensibility absurd <laughs> oftentimes but but that said as a species with the think about how long the human species has been around i just saw some reference to they figured out in morocco someplace they found in a cave there were uh, skin scraping tools that were used probably to be making clothing. Mm -hmm. So, and that was at somewhere eighty and to hundred thousand years ago. Right, and we okay. So, well, yeah. yeah, go ahead. So, I was going to say two hundred thousand years. I think. Oh, right? it, it probably goes that farther back because anytime you're talking about organic material, it doesn't survive time. So it's it, we don't we don't find the traces that were probably there. I always figure that things are at least twice as far back as we think when we find stuff. Um, but you think about how kind of slow the pace of human development was. And, you know, the last time we lived in an age where people wanted to choose belief in what the deity said over science was a period we called the dark ages. Mm -hmm. um, and then to come into the modern age of democracy after the enlightenment, and how much things have changed and how much things have changed because of reason and science. The fact that we're even having this call right now, it isn't even over a copper wire. Right. We're talking over fiber optic, over, you know, and then maybe even jump into a satellite and back before it, you know, we get to one another. Mm -hmm. In real time. Uh, probably not. Probably not. But um, so 
the the endeavor of looking into the process of how we think, where thinking comes from, what thinking can do, when it's in an ordered state, and it get and it we you know test hypotheses and theories. Unlike conspiracy theories, which are not even a theory, they're usually a you know pasted together discontinuous thoughts, and it's it's only a conspiracy because a bunch of people get on board and decide to accept that same disjuncted thought process. Right, it's a numbskull convention, basically. Yeah. 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 Your Q, yeah. by the way, right? Q? Your Q, right? Is that true? I heard your Q. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was I was shopping in TJ Maxx. I had to. I was supposed to pick up some sheets, and I'm looking, and there was the. I need a set of queens, and there was the big Q on it. I was like, is this a message? <laughs> oh, folks, we're talking Almighty Todd, our resident philosopher here. Now, if you if you've been listening, you understand why we dub him as such. Uh, out of his homestead in uh, Stockbridge, Vermont. And uh, so th I, I think this is going to lead us into the uh, bad faith argument, the social contract. Well, that yeah, actually, we yeah, we should talk about the social contract before. The, although there's a lot of bad faith argumentation going on right now. And you and I have talked about this in the past. But I, th I really think that all of us need a little handbook to, to use when we get into engagements with, with people and are discussing things in order to identify when there are logical fallacies and bad faith arguments in play because in a way that in and of itself is a is a, a violation of the social contract right in terms of that we should we need to all play by the same rules and there are a bunch of rules that we've set down that have got us to this point and that mean that namely that means using reason and science to the best effect we can and to realize that when when something changes in a scientific theory or an understanding, it's not because they were wrong before. It's because they got a better understanding than they did before. That's a better way of looking at it. I mean, they were wrong, perhaps, but not because they, but, you know. But you don't, you can't, and that's, it, to, it's they didn't a bad know enough. argument itself to say, oh, well, they got it wrong before, so science is bad. Right, no, that's ridiculous. It's, exactly. Yeah. But that's the kind of discussion, that's the kind of discussion points that you hear used by individuals and by celebrities and by networks that propose to be, you know, news media. So I think at this point, we need to be preparing ourselves um, as, as best we can to call out the fallacious stuff when it when it shows itself and and not give it airtime and, you know, like have a three strike rule. Or, or if or or one strike rule, it's like look under the circumstances. Hey, if you can't, if you don't know these rules of engagement, you can't play on the field. Right, and and if you're no, not, and, and, and right. we're not, I'm not canceling you. I'm just saying you need to go learn this stuff before we can play. You have to do your due diligence, and we have to play within the context that is, uh, you know, it's a broad context, but it, it has to be rooted in, in in fact or at least reasonableness. Well, and that is, that's part of how we get to this idea of the, the modern social contract. Now, social contract theory, it goes back into ancient history, as long as there's been philosophy, probably. Because it's all, it's, it, what it talks about is how do we set down the rules of mutual understanding so that we can exist together in a civil society. Right. And it, it, 
itself has gone through some gyrations, and we've talked about this, this in the past. You get your Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is kind of like the father of modern dis- democracy, democratic thinking, you know, underpinnings for the um, Declaration of Independence, all that. And you go to Locke before him. Well, there's Locke and Hobbes, Hobbes. before him. And, and, and that really is our 17th, 18th century when the, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution happened. And this no, is and Western it's... thinking only. We're not even privy. Well, you are more than me, I suppose, to Eastern thinking or other, you know, thinking other than European Western thinking. Right. Well, at least in ancient Greece, in Epicurus, I believe, th- 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 there were these kinds of discussions. In fact, I think even uh, Socrates made some kind of argument about, well, he had to he had to take the death penalty because of the, you know, the rules of society. And he was going to be an adherent to those rules. Um. But you've got this this kind of evolving understanding of what it was, and like Hobbes, he he was like without any kind of social structure, it's basically barbarism. You know, it's it's a it's a complete free for all, and that's where that famous quote comes from. That is um, that human life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And we were basically constantly at odds with one another, and so it, it really took. Having a uh, a sovereign entity over society to kind of set the rules for what society, whether it be a monarch or or, or a parliament or what have. Well, you. It, in his case, that was still kind of more like in the in the the monarchs stage, and that there was kind of like this the that the power of the political state is kind of uncontested, and we just you accept it for what it is, although. If at the point at which it, the, the the state is no longer able to protect its subjects, then, then you can revolt. You can revolt, or, or, or it's going to collapse. Right. Which, doesn't that that sounds pretty interesting in in this day and age when we've got certain governors in this country who are not only not looking out to protect for their subjects, but they're actually making policies and laws in legislatures that make their subjects less safe. We're not talking about Texas or Florida, though. No, among others. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so <laughs> anyway, so so there's this. There's always this chance that everything will revert to natural law, which is basically just a state of hey, you do whatever the hell you want. Libertarianism. <laughs> well, that's well, you know. Luckily, the libertarians, all, I, it, the real libertarians, understand that you you have your liberties, but you can't infringe on other people's liberties. Right. I guess I'm talking about you know nouveau. Uh, the the neo libertarians, uh, those who I think I think that's um, you spell it F A C I S. How do you spell fascist? F A C I S T. Yeah, <laughs> but this machine kills fascists. By the way, this machine being freedom of actual, uh, you know, uh, reasoned dialogue and thinking. You know. This 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 sort of effort, and we got to continue doing it. Um, yeah, you know, we only have a couple minutes left, and I, I you know, I I have so many questions for you. You've brought up so many bits of insight and fact that I wanted to delve into. Uh, I, I just want to give you a, a sense that we have a couple minutes left, so bring it home, Almighty Todd. Well. Okay, I'll do my best to wrap it around in terms of thinking about this this whole social contract thing because I it 
it really is more an exercise than anything else. It's not like a hard and fast rule, although in some ways it's what informs something like the U.S. Constitution, which is our contract with one another and with our government as to how we want to organize ourselves. So after Hobbes, there was Locke, and he he said, you know, basically people normally would get along with one another, but you had to have a way to arbitrate disputes and people had a right to property and, you know, sovereigns who violated people's rights to property, they could be overthrown too. So there's, you could only, the social contract only covered a certain amount of stuff. There was some stuff you couldn't violate. Rousseau was the next stage where he said, no, we all have to live together. And that actually people in general are happy and good people. It's when you put them in society together that you start having problems. They aren't nasty and brutish and short lives otherwise. Um, And that you have to like, actually at that point realize that property itself is sometimes up for grabs for the social good. That's where you get your eminent domain. That's where President Trump wanted to take people's backyards to put a wall up. Hey, sometimes that's what's got to happen. A highway or something. Yeah, right. But but the problem is that the social contract itself might have some built in issues because that highway in this country has always been more likely to be put through a poor black neighborhood than any place else. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you so environmental the, racism, classism, all of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the social contract, if the contract itself isn't structured right, it's going to perpetuate issues of patriarchy, issues of white supremacy, issues of classism. Yeah. It, it almost legitimizes it. It makes it, it, it inculcates it in law. Right. So, um, so that said, you know, the, the contract itself really needs to think about who's involved with the contract. Who, you know, what does the contract say? Is the contract actually meeting the goals of what the contract was drafted for? And that's why there's some people who in this country who, uh, because they don't have the capacity to think in rational lines of thought. Or training, ready, if they, not capacity. to throw the Constitution out the door. Yeah. And, and they would rather go back to having an authoritarian sovereign who just makes all the decisions so that we don't have to. Right. You say capacity. Yeah, you say capacity. I I think it's hopefully more so training, you know, education. It's yes, true. I mean, there's there's always well, capacity has a lot to do with. Does your your community or your family or your church give you the space to think about things? I got you. So, yeah, it's like I I don't mean that in terms of like uh, ability, ability. Um, It's more how free are you to think freely or how much are you at the behest of those around you and then that's that's the, in a way that's there are mini, mini social contracts inside of larger social contracts and so i just think it's a it's an interesting way to think about how we relate with one another and that's something we need to do more actively excellent almighty todd wonderful wonderful so it's uh it's it's about time for us to say uh, until until the next go around i you know and i always am am uh, so uh, invigorated and i feel much more enlightened after we speak and I, I have a lot of research to do as well usually afterwards i write down all these things and i go look 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 in a little deeper so thank you thank you i'll for send all you me. some links i'll save you some time <laughs> please please do please do 
Uh, enjoy the fruits it's been of your good labor. Talking with you. Yeah, you too, man. Tell every, everybody who has a chance, go out there, go pick some apples or go to the farmer's market. Enjoy autumn. This is a wonderful time of year in our part of the world. Thank you. You too. Ciao, fratello. Take care, my brother. All you others too Sinners and believers Yeah, we're talking to you Working in the field Working on the city streets Grinding in the alleys On the corners in the bay You fight the good fight Now you're starting to fade Raise the glass high to the sky And call it a day You keep breaking the sweat You keep hurting your back You keep giving all you're giving And nobody gives jack But you keep on whistling Working, singing along Now the sun's done shining And the sky's turned gray titled Eating the Whale, A Personal History of Meat, written by Wyatt Williams and published in the September 2021 edition of Harper's Magazine. I landed in Barrow, Alaska on a bright June night. The flight had been long, 
with a stop in Minneapolis, a layover in Anchorage, and another stop in Prudhoe Bay before my arrival at Wiley Post Will Rogers Memorial Airport. It is as far north as Alaska Airlines flies. The sun had risen a few days ago and wouldn't set again for weeks. This all happened near the end of the two centuries during which the town had been known as Barrow. In the fall, the town would vote to change the name back to Utgjavik. The place had been known by that name or something like it for hundreds of years prior, long before white whalers and explorers started showing up and naming things after themselves. But the vote would happen later, after I left. On the day I arrived, my plane ticket said Barrow. The signs said Barrow. Everyone called it Barrow. So this part of the story happened in Barrow, a town that does not and does exist. On the southern edge of town, where the road meets the open tundra, there is a cemetery. It is an uneven place. The graves are lumpy and round and wide, and the white crosses that mark each body are crooked and have settled in such a way that they point in contrary directions. In the winter, the ground is frozen and must be broken with augers to dig a grave. In the spring and summer, after the sun emerges from the Arctic night and the snow melts, the ground loosens a bit and digging can be done by hand. It is one of the most colorful places in town, full of bright artificial flowers and makeshift memorials and handmade decorations. The bodies buried here freeze in the soil before decay can begin. The dirt placed on top will never quite flatten out. The rolling piles of dirt and old grassy mounds offer evidence of the people below. Eventually, the cycles of the frozen tundra will swell the ground, heaving many of the graves up even higher, as if the bodies are being rejected. The land does not want the past to be buried. Tourists come here every year to see the northern lights or watch for migratory birds. Some hope to glimpse a polar bear before the species goes extinct. I'd come because I wanted to eat a whale. From the graveyard, the road into town leads past a field of giant satellites, huge white dishes that bring in the rest of the world, phone service and weather reports and television channels. In most places, satellites point up toward the sky, but here they point straight ahead. In this place, about as close to the North Pole as one can live, you need only look over your shoulder to the right, and there you can see it, the end of the earth. Beyond the satellites, the road passes a gravel pit. It is a cliffside operation that puts out pearly black pebbles by the ton. Every year, when the melting waters of the Chukchi Sea take more land from the coast of Barrow, Dump trucks of gravel will repair whatever holes they can fill. It is a failing operation. The town gets smaller every year, but the gravel trucks do what they can. Outside the airport, the wind was whipping my face, freezing cold, and the sun was high up in the cloudless sky. I squinted, 
couldn't see through the glare, put on sunglasses. A beat-up Toyota rolled down the road, and I waved him over. He took me to a restaurant called Northern Lights. I was tired and hungry, and the waitress bought me a $30 plate of chicken bulgogi. The driver hung around, said he didn't have anywhere else to be at this hour. He was from Myanmar, had been here for a few years, didn't speak much English. He drove me down a long road to a rusted Quonset hut on the edge of town. I'd rented a room there, but no one was home. I found a key to the front door in a pickup parked out front. I lay down in a bed I figured was mine, tried to close the blinds, and shut out the night sun.
rising. A blue bird there, then a red-head cardinal, lands on a green bush near the riverside, a riparian delight, such a whimsical moment in my sights, as I walk by on a well-traveled path, through the grass, in a park, in a burrow, up the main line from the valley city, rising slowly out of industrial decline. As education and the arts nourish its people, though their church bells still chime. Late at night when the wind is still, I'll come flying through your door. Episode 438 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. 
I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend, Almighty Todd. Writer Wyatt Williams. Harper's Magazine. And these musical artists. Thelonious Monk. Aaron Lee Tazjan. Andy Schoff. Leon Clark. Richard Swift. Paul McCartney and Wings, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our very best with this time. Take care. <laughs>